Join us as we unpack emerging trends and changes in digital transformation with the executives, entrepreneurs, and investors responsible for shaping the future of their industries. In these interviews, you can expect to hear candid conversations about the future of technology and the role it plays at some of the largest organizations in the world. Our hosts are members of the Kunai team, an agency that has been building software products for over 20 years. Today, your host will be Therun Basin. Hey everybody, Tharun Basin here with Kunai's podcast, FinTech is Eating the World. And I have Charlie Ma with, here, me, with me here today. Thank you for joining us, Charlie. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having uh, me. Of course, of course. We're excited to have you. Charlie right now is the GM of FinTech at Alloy, which focuses on identity solutions. Previous to that, he was the head of growth at Ramp, which is the high-flying corporate card startup. Uh, he was the first growth hire at Plaid and also opened the New York office. Um, and he originated his career at JP Morgan. And now at the end of his career, he's also investing. And so you have the full life cycle from old school bank to open banking to all the new stuff that's happening today. So I'm very excited to speak with you across all those foundational points and where you think things are going to go in the future as well. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so let's kick it off with Plaid. You were there in the early days. You're building one of the first infrastructure companies in the U.S. in terms of fintech, and just curious, like what were the cha- the challenges you faced technically from introducing a newer concept to the business community as well as to the technical community? And how were those early days? And you know, maybe talk more about like how things were coming into New York, especially at that time before Silicon Valley was really formed. Yeah. Um... It was interesting. So I joined Plaid uh, in early 2015 and was there till about late 2019 or so. Um, and so when, when, I, when I first joined, uh, it was our founders and, and, and a bunch of engineers and then uh, myself just kind of trying to figure out how can we get companies to use the platform. And uh, at the time, it was a bit contrarian. Like I think we, we kind of had this, help, this belief that uh, one, fintech was going to be a huge market. Uh, it was a kind of incoming wave of companies that, that were over time going to be really, really big. And, and two, uh, that we were building critical infrastructure that was also going to enable that wave and thus also like, help and allow for the creation of uh, new fintech companies. Um, but it was interesting. I, at, the, at the time, that was, I think, retrospect now, like it, it seems kind of, yeah, duh. Um, but at the time, it seemed, I, I think, somewhat contrarian. Um, I think the vast majority of VCs didn't really believe in that. A vast majority of, uh, of people didn't really think that, oh, you can actually build you know, products that can be competitive or can actually compete in terms of user basis with these large companies. Um, and you can actually build you know, multi-billion dollar startups within the space. Um, and so I think we've, we've obviously seen that to to not to, to be the case that that is possible. Um, but I, I think that also like really kind of defined and really refined our philosophy and who we're, who we're building for. So I think like the DNA of the company was very much, it was, it was built by developers for developers. Um, the origins of the company uh, were, were, was to solve a problem that our founders ran into where the original iteration of Plaid wasn't uh, you know API first infrastructure connected to, to bank accounts, but rather they were, they were building a consumer-facing app. So Zach and William, our co-founders, were building a, a consumer uh, fintech application, uh, and as part of that, they wanted to figure out how to get access 
to you know your financial data uh, within your financial accounts. There were quite a few kind of large incumbents at the time. Um, I think like the biggest competitor that we had at the time was going to call Yobly. Um, it's been around uh, for quite a while. Um, but the, the you know, working with them just just wasn't a very delightful experience as a startup, right? They didn't have kind of world class APIs. Uh, there wasn't. It was a very sort of enterprise heavy sales notion, um, and so they ended up building the infrastructure themselves. And I think realized that oh, the interesting company isn't the app they're building, but the underlying infrastructure. Uh, and so then they pivoted the company to what is now known as what what is now Plaid. And our initial go to market focus, as a result, was also refined by that, where it's, hey, we, we don't know how to sell to banks. A lot of the enterprises think what we're doing is kind of crazy. Like the idea of giving a uh, bank account access via your credentials seems as though it's like almost fraudulent. Uh, why would we ever do this? Like no consumer would do this, right? Uh, but we were seeing behaviors like change drastically. Um, people were going on to phones. It's sort of like much more common uh, for kind of that sharing and enabling permissioning of data. Um, and so we we just targeted startups like super early on. That was like our entire go to market from like the very beginning. Um, kind of and, and to pause on that for a second, I think like six years ago, right? You're talking about this contrarian view yeah. of techs are going to be big, infrastructure is a play. And to think about it now is just like to your point, it's kind of like the dog comment. Yeah. You know, Stripe is 90 billion. We just had our largest ever VC funding round for fintech this last quarter yeah. after 2020. And so it's just interesting to see that after six years, it's now we're in this, of course, moment. But six years back, it was very much contrarian. It was people on the on the early side of the, I guess, innovation curve, mm-hmm. really building this stuff out. Yeah, no, I think that... And- there's sort of like a like a, a bit of a chicken and egg where I, I, I like as companies like Plaid and other infrastructure infrastructure providers kind of came to market. Like it obviously, I, I think it started to kind of lower the barrier to entry as to you know how what it would it take to actually build uh, a product within financial services, right? Um, like I think Shamir, former co-founder of Simple, talked about this where um, as being one of the first neo banks, when like when he was starting. Uh, simple, like he didn't have the benefit of like, all the infrastructure that's available today for anyone who wants to start a neo bank, right? Uh, like Chime, Simple, so a lot of these, these early fintech companies had to go through a lot of the hard work um, of building that connectivity into uh, their bank providers, of figuring out how to connect to the bank accounts. Um, we were very, very grateful to be partners with a lot of these early companies. Um, companies like, you know, Coinbase and Robinhood and Chime, like Back in 2015, like we were meeting them as founders and we were selling to them and convincing them to use our API. Uh, so we were all kind of in the same boat. Of everyone thinks that what we're building is kind of crazy, um, but we think, I think, and kind of view it the world a little bit differently. Um, but I think there was this kind of like interesting feedback loop that happened over the next five, six years where I think one proved that, that you can build you know, 10, 20, 100x better products within financial services. Two, there is consumer demand and business demand for these products. Um, that the existing kind of incumbents aren't servicing a lot of these kind of different customer bases very, very well. Um, and then three, I think the other thing that, that to me is really exciting is that kind of injection of, of talent and excitement into the pool, right? Yeah. I think five, six years ago, the number of people that had ever built and, and thought about working and, and like even knew, okay, how do you go about, you know, creating a relationship with a sponsor bank and setting up deposit accounts and issuing cards, probably single digits of people that could actually think about building that, right? 
and now I think if you see more successes and we've seen more people with that experience, like that knowledge and, and, and expertise within financial services, but I think it's starting to really really unlock is kind of more spread around, um, which I think just, just kind of continues to feed into more and more companies and better companies being built in the space. Yeah, I think the story I heard around Chime with Chris Britt, the CEO. Yeah, Chris and Ryan, yeah, yeah. Was they like they had to convince Gal- Galileo to create an external facing API mm-hmm. and services around whether it was credit card or banking. And so they really, I guess, pushed that part forward to as a service for the banking industry. And so it's like fintechs, even if they're product related, there's a fintech product and infrastructure kind of symbiosis that occurs that's just you know and as they've grown the fintech ecosystem has naturally grown and so it's all funneled into itself and it's like this virtual cycle almost yeah no yeah i think we we had a similar kind of uh situation at cloud where um one, one of our kind of like design and early partners was, was venmo okay. um so right they had this issue where um this is post branch acquisition but the majority the, they, they were basically just finding that the more users that they acquire, the more money they lost, right? And the main reason being that when they were funding bank, when they're funding the Venmo wallet, they were having users fund via their credit cards and their debit cards, right? And they're letting users do that for free. But every time a user does that, they have to pay error change, right? So every single user that they added on, the more and more money that they end up losing, right? Not a great situation to be in. Uh, but then the issue they run into is that, well, okay, if we're going to go to bank to bank payments, we have to ask the user to enter in routing and account numbers. They have to go through micro deposits on a mobile first experience, extremely high drop off rates. And you kind of kill a lot of the virality and growth that's kind of built into the product. Uh, and so they approached, uh, I think Zach, our founder at Plaid of like, Hey, like you, you guys are building connectivity into bank accounts. Could you also like pull down payment information for us and identity information and help us kind of streamline that onboarding process? Uh, and I think our engineering team kind of took a look and was like, Actually, yes, like we, we can do that. And it turns out, wait, this product is actually like it's it's something that Venmo is uniquely solving, but it's something that, you know, from that point forward, like any other mobile first fintech application that needed to do account funding, like needs that product, right? Yep. Um, and so like they were an awesome design partner, and then we were able to get to kind of product market fit with, with that product. I think it's what now called the off product um uh, plan, and it's kind of the key. Uh, pillar foundation to to a lot of the revenue base that that plaid's built up, but um, yeah, a lot of it was kind of being pushed from what was kind of in market and what 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 developers and and, and companies were demanding. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And the last example I'll also give is like Stripe and Lyft. Yeah, uh, Stripe built out Lyft's gig platform for payments and that whole whole that whole entire set. Which now enabled Stripe to enter marketplaces more broadly. Yeah, and Stripe Connect and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you so you're at Plaid. You're building all this out, having really exciting conversations. You also you also expanded the team to New York in Silicon Alley in the earlier days. How was that? I know on your uh, LinkedIn profile you bought Lacroix, but uh, I. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, uh, it's fun. So uh, yeah, when I, I grew up in the Bay Area, um, but then went to school in the East Coast and Virginia Morgan that was in, in New York. So I really, really loved New York, um, but moved out to San Francisco to join Plaid. Uh, so I really, really loved the team and the company, um, but always wanted to come, wanted to come back to New York City. Uh, but to be honest, I was actually a little bit hesitant. I, like I, I did think that, you know, at the time, just kind of 2015, 2016, 2017, um, I mean, San Francisco was an amazing place to be in. There was tons of companies being founded and kind of being in that ecosystem. And 
uh, that kind of second or third wave of, of tech was pretty magical. Um, and, and I think there were a lot of, you know, there were interesting companies in, in New York, but it didn't seem to have like the same density at the time. Uh, but starting in 2017, 2018, like one, I, I really missed being in New York City. I, I love the city here. Uh, and two, I think I started to see, uh, yeah, kind of more transfer of talent kind of on both sides, right? And so I think I managed to, to wear down um, our founders and convince them to let me move out to New York City that uh, we had enough of a client base to, to justify having a dedicated kind of New York office. Um, and so moved out here, moved back to New York in 2018 or so. Um, and then quickly, with the next thing we did, we decided, we decided to do was uh, we raised a, a really big round of funding, raised our Series C, I think, either shortly before or shortly after. I don't remember the timing of that, um, but raised a pretty big round. And then um, we decided to be a little bit acquisitive. Uh, and so we bought... Um, Quovo here in New York City. So uh, the New York office initially was like myself when I had four or five other people. And we ended up acquiring, I think Quovo was about 120, 140 people or so. Uh, so all of a sudden we had uh, a very much a New York presence. Um, and we had to figure out, okay, how do we embed ourselves into the ecosystem here? How do we integrate the two companies and the cultures together? Um, how do we go about, you know, uh, growing in a, in a thoughtful manner um, and kind of bringing, you know, all these different different uh, people and products uh, into kind of one house, which was a pretty interesting exercise. Yep. And then, and then after that, you guys, well, Visa tried to acquire you. And I think yes. at the yeah. time you were excited and now you're even more excited for Plaid post, you know, the deal falling apart. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, twenty twenty was a very interesting year for for a lot of reasons, I guess. But yeah, I think we, we announced in early twenty twenty um, uh, that yeah we 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 entered into an acquisition agreement with Visa, uh, and you know it was pending regulatory review. You know, no big deal. Turned out that was a big deal, and the DOJ spent a lot of time kind of investigating the deal and decided to sue. Um, but then obviously, I, I think with you know, 2020 was uh, pretty pretty interesting headwinds for a lot of fintech companies, including including Plaid, where we I think we just saw this you know crazy acceleration of digital adoption within financial services, and Plaid kind of being a core infrastructure provider to a lot of these fintech companies. I think also experienced a lot of growth through 2020, and um, I think with kind of uncertainty around the deal, uh, I think both sides announced earlier this year that they were. Kind of walking away from the deal as a result of the DOJ deciding to sue to block it, um, and uh, I forgot when they, but they announced the recent fundraise. And uh, I'm a, I am personally excited about Plaid being being private again. I, I was excited about about Visa and uh, kind of a, a lot of the opportunities there, but um, I think kind of given what's happened in 2020, like I, I still think there's like a, a lot of room uh, to to build and to grow still. Yeah. And to keep on this infrastructure conversation before diving into other experiences that you've had in your career, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? And you're also on the investment side and thinking about that. So, you know, where, where does the money meet the road for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think, um, I think there's sort of like, I think different phases of like fintech infrastructure that I'm, I'm kind of developing a, uh, a bit of a hypothesis around, right? Like I think you had, um, if you want to call it FinTech 1, FinTech 1.0, FinTech 2.0, whatever, right? You had this like 2000 era FinTech, right? Where it was post-financial crisis. Um, there are these unique conditions 
that I think enabled for like fintech to exist, right? I think one, there was obviously the financial crisis. There's a lack of trust kind of being built up with existing financial institutions. Um, and there was, you know, some activity early on around, uh, hey, we can, we can, you know, bring in technology. We can, we can create, uh, kind of reinvent and, or not even reinvent. It's more of so like we, we can recreate better financial products using technology, right? I think that was kind of like, you know, the 2000 eras of fintech. And so you've had like that, the first wave of you've had your Coinbase's, your Chimes, your, your Robinhood's about to IPO soon, right? And then as a result, you also had, uh, infrastructure providers that, that were kind of enabling that, right? So you had Marketo, who's about to IRPO on the card issuing side. You had uh, kind of a lot of kind of old, you had some banking as a service providers. You had Galileo um, and, and others um, kind of start to, as that initial wave uh, of companies, right? Um, but I think what we're starting to see now is that, okay, great. I think COVID was another kind of interesting uh, headwind where it, I think it's it's identified a lot of other structural issues around our financial system, uh, particularly in the U.S. and internationally too, um, which I think also results in a lot of interesting opportunities on, on new products being built. And I think there's a next wave of fintech infrastructure that's coming to market. Right? Um, I think companies like Plaid and Stripe kind of did pave the way for something like this, where I think the future is much more developer first, developer focused when it comes to infrastructure. Um, around, okay, how do you enable as many companies as possible to build on top of your platform and enable as many use cases as freely as possible? Um, we always kind of have this like thesis at Cloud where we don't really know when we're building our products, we have an idea as to what's going to get built. We don't, we don't exactly 100% know like how different companies are going to cobble together different providers and come up with new products and solutions, right? Like, um, I had, I had no clue Coinbase was going to be going to be that big, right? But we did think it was an interesting use case, and we're going to enable that, right? Um, and I think this like next generation of fintech infrastructure is one kind of continue to go further down into like the banking stack, right? I think that uh, okay, how do you get closer to the metal on? Well, if you're if you're issuing out like ACH payments, how do you get you know direct access to uh, all the various ACH networks, to the wire networks, to the card issuing networks. Like, how do you kind of get close to the metal? As I think, one more and more financial institutions are kind of more used to working with fintech companies and fintech infrastructure. And then, two, how do you also then, uh, on the flip side, enable faster time to value to that infrastructure? Right. I still think that um, I think Planet Stripes did do a great job of being really developer first. I think if you just kind of go into the, these other infrastructure providers. And you talk to developers that have used some of these other kind of you know 2000 era infrastructure providers that are coming public now like i think they would say they're not super developer friendly that they're not the easiest platforms to use there's some interesting kind of legacy tech deck issues that they run into yeah. uh so from an investment perspective like i'm excited to invest into this, this next wave of infrastructure that i think is kind of platform first developer first and that kind of also goes deeper into the financial services stack hey there we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Kunai Podcast. Kunai Concepts designs and develops unique customer experiences that unite digital products with fintech for the world's top companies. We partner with our clients from start to finish to ensure that their product development efforts are always high velocity and customer aligned. This is why Fortune 500 companies, all four payment networks, five of the 10 top banks, and startups trust Kunai. And now, Back to the episode. Do you do you hold the view that it's fintech, and then what's going to disrupt fintech is like this crypto blockchain? And do you believe that's the ultimate 
you know, yeah, yeah. Ultimate, um, Default. Uh, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It feels I'm going to get like roasted for saying anything here, but I don't, I don't think so. Maybe like I, I, I am, um, I find DeFi to be extremely intellectually interesting. Um, I would argue that in my opinion, I actually think like, I, I think there are some like, I, I still, I historically, I've kind of thought about blockchain and, and DeFi as a bit of a solution in search of a problem, like a very, very interesting solution, but the, the kind of hair and fire problem that they're solving for the average consumer was a little bit unclear to me, right? I think there were some interesting use cases around cross-border. I agree with that. Like if you're in a country where your currency is getting deflated to zero, then makes a lot of sense there, right? But uh, I think that if you're uh, if, if you're unemployed, you can't get access to capital uh, in the U.S. and you need access to to like liquidity or to lending products. Like blockchain doesn't solve a lot of stuff for that community today, quite yet, in my opinion, right? Um, they still need to figure like no matter what I think right now in today's economy, like you still need to figure out how to get uh, access to current existing financial products and get access to get connected into the existing fiat system, right? Uh, and so I, I still think there's like a ton of opportunity within just modernizing uh, existing financial services, and I think that's going to last for a very long time. But on the flip side, like I, I think it also would be dumb and foolish to ignore what's happening in DeFi, right? I think there's like a lot of first principles thinking happening there that I think can be influential in regards to how you design and think about how products work. Um, I would argue, I actually, I've been getting kind of excited and interested in DeFi again with all the stuff that's happening around NFTs. Like I do think that, yeah, there's a, it's, it's kind of a little bit crazy as with all things around crypto gets away, it gets a little bit crazy from like an investment perspective. But I, I, I do think this idea of, I think that's like intersection of like the creator economy plus, okay, how do you actually monetize your audiences and how do you start to issue out licensing? How do you think about uh, like building more trustless systems uh, around the economy? I find to be interesting. And I think we're starting to see like, in my opinion, like real utilities start to appear. Yep. Yep. I think, it, and maybe you were saying this, but the idea is that, you know, DeFi at the end of the day is a tool. Yeah, and it maybe further aligns incentives than what we have currently, like with this creator economy, right? You're taking out the middle yeah. effectively, right? That's what DeFi does by uh, by decentralizing trust. And I think that's super interesting. But I think you make a good point of it's not going to solve the underbanked and unbanked. That is still a problem that needs to be addressed, no matter how you look at it, whether it's through DeFi or just through you know the current fintech kind of lens. Yeah, yeah, and I think that there's like there's there's fundamental things that 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 uh, still need to be solved across like our economy, right? Like I think that uh, it's funny. Like if I sent my like parents a Bitcoin, I think they would have no clue what to do with it, right? And they would probably go to a centralized party like a Coinbase or someone else to figure out what to do with the Bitcoin that they get, right? Um, and if I go to some, I have some relatives that uh, are, are in other countries that, that don't have the same access to technology in the internet that we do. Um, and it's a very, very kind of different world that they live in. Um, and it's like, we need to just get them like access to high-speed internet, right? Uh, so different problems, I think. Let's go into ramp real quick with the time we yeah. have. Um, so I used to be at American Express on the B2B side of the house, working on corporate cards, saw small business, large, and uh, what we called at that point, global corporate conglomerates, which were the huge Fortune 50 companies that just had a presence everywhere. 
Yeah. Uh, Brex back then was eating their lunch. Ramp is now eating Brex's lunch. And there's just yeah. the space. It used to be a cash cow for the business. They underinvested and just took all the profits. And now it's severely impacted with the competition. How was how was building at Ramp? What were you guys focused on? What's like the ultimate what's the ultimate goal there? Yeah, no. Um yeah, I would say so. Uh, on day one, I think what we identified was um, it, it was kind of a, a crazy statement, right? I think we were like we, the, the company was initially started in, I want to say, 2018, 2019 or so. Um, and that Brex and Divi were, were extremely well funded and very, very large. And I think we kind of came out to uh, investors and were like, hey, we're going to like, we're going to try to beat them. We're going to, we're going to be better, better than them, right? And I think the question we got back was, how that seems that's a kind of a ridiculous statement they're they're, they're not only going against against incumbents in terms of amex you're also going against a very well backed uh and very high growth company in the space uh, and i think what we realized was um we were talking to a lot of customers within uh, the initial segment we were going after which was tech companies was the segment that we knew the best and, and what we were finding is that you know i think brex did an amazing job uh, as being kind of a founder card. You just came out of YC, you just raised some funding. Hey, here's a, a corporate card. You see the billboards and there's a ton of rewards and uh, it's optimized as a, as a fantastic founder card. But, but what we're seeing is that as companies got larger, um, they hired a controller, they hired a CFO, a finance team. Uh, that finance team would come in and, and once again, you know, sign up for an SVB or an Amex card and put in place some sort of spend management, expense management platform. And we were like, okay, something here is being missed, right? Like, I think that um, there's this, this other key stakeholder that's involved in any sort of spend management platform or decision. It's this controller, the CFO, the, the finance suite. Uh, and so our kind of initial wedge in the market was, we're going to build for that segment. We're going to go after high growth uh, tech companies that are kind of more series A, B, onwards later stage. We're going to be selling explicitly to... Uh, the CFO, the head of finance, and we're going to have a value prop that resonates with that, right? So I think uh, the product that we launched was it's the first corporate card that helps you save time and save money. Uh, it has all the controls you care about. It has uh, all the reporting that's really important for to kind of manage. It has um, uh, all of the accounting integrations to, to help you save time for reconciling expenses and uh, all that side of the house. And we're also, we built a bunch of kind of machine learning AI that will analyze your transactions, your receipts, your invoices, and automatically find opportunities to save money. So that kind of incentive alignment with companies that are trying to grow as quickly as possible while also kind of maintaining their bottom line, I think resonated really strongly in the market. And the, and the product that we built for that segment uh, was actually like very, very powerful. Uh, and so I think we were able to quickly get market share and really just get, get to like parity and above product parity where... I think quickly, like we were able to prove, like we, I think we did have a best-in-class product in the market, which is why we we're able to win uh, a lot of pretty large companies. Um, and I think the end goal and end vision is the corporate card is just kind of one part of the picture. Um, it's really kind of moving into like a comprehensive spend management platform, being the kind of one-stop shop for your finance team and your exec team to understand, analyze, optimize for spend across the entire company. Uh, but doing so in a much more kind of software first manner than like purely a card. Like I think the card is interesting. It's really kind of software that monetizes using card revenue. Uh, whereas I think Amex thinks of it the other way, right? It's more, there's a card, we're going to build software to support the card. But I think that like manner of thinking from a product development standpoint is like 
fundamentally different. Yep, yep. And that's the challenge the banks have, I guess, fundamentally, is they think about things from a financial product standpoint. Yeah. Techs think about it from a customer standpoint. Yeah. So they're trying to pivot now, but you're talking about organizational change and just things that don't necessarily mess with that, which is like annual budget cycles. Uh, yeah. And annual, annual funding. And it's just, it's tough. It's not an yeah. easy answer. Um, the last piece I wanted to dive into, which is increasingly important, and we see it all the time at Kunai, is identity in mm-hmm. KYC. And that's your role at Alloy. Yeah. And as you have this proliferation of fintechs, of banks, your identity is kind of scattered across all over the place and managing it becomes increasingly difficult. Um, so we'd love to hear more of what you're doing at Alloy and how you think about identity in the future. Yeah, yeah. So I would say it's probably helpful to give a quick kind of positioning as to how, how what will we do? Because I think KYC can seem to be a very crowded market. Um, but high level around Alloy, what we do, there's kind of obviously two main things. On one side, we built out all these integrations to all the various data sources you could possibly care about for identity, fraud, KYC, et cetera, right? Um, so there's all these different data partners and vendors that you can integrate into that we have integrations out of the box for you to integrate into. Um, and then the other side, we provide a, a no-code, low-code, which is now hip now, but we didn't call it no-code, low-code at the time, uh, workflow decision engine on top of that data. So using Alloy, um, you just send us you know, whatever PII, whatever information you have on the user via API, uh, and then we help you seamlessly pick and choose what data vendors you want to compare that data against and how you want to go about decisioning and building all the various rules and logic around yes, no, deny, reject for fraud, KYC, whatever purposes. Um, and so I think the thing that, that we've seen, especially with, with 2020 is, uh, yeah, everything's online. And I think there's that meme, right? Like on, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog or no one knows you're a fridge, right? Like you, you can't be, before that you can be dependent on, oh, when you're opening a bank account, you're going to have the person go into a branch. They're going to talk to a person. You're going to kind of get to know them and build a relationship with them. And and you, there is kind of a, a, a real person being established there. Uh, on the internet, you can't even assume that the person signing up is the actual person behind that device, right? And so there's a lot more attack vectors. Uh, and there's also a ton more data exhaust, right? Like now with, uh, if someone signs up for a, a financial services account online, you can track things like their IP, their device fingerprint, how they go about uh, typing into uh, the field, where they're coming from, who their background is. Like, there's all this information, social media profiles, right? Like whatever information you have, there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of data sources and data points to pull from. And being able to kind of sift through that noise is, is increasingly more and more difficult. And also being able to even like consume that down and do so in a logical manner is increasingly difficult. And so I think that's where, you know, that, that, that's the reason why Alloy exists, where, where we sort of view the world as, more and more financial services are increasingly going more and more online. There's more and more attack vectors, more and more fraud vectors. You want to have best-in-class data sources for different parts of your population, different parts of your product, but being able to manage that at scale uh, and do so in a, in a simplified manner is, is going to be kind of pretty critical. Yep, yep, and I agree. And just as I'm watching the clock here, I think that's probably a good place to end is yeah. with Alloy and the fact that identity is becoming increasingly something, it's security-focused. Um, and I'm really excited about what you guys are building over there. So yeah, we are too. Yeah, I think a uh, lot, lots to build still, but uh, I still think it's early innings. Yeah. Well, thank you, Charlie, and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Thank you.